and welcome to the Frank and Fearless Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Harris, uh, streaming live online from New Zealand. Uh, today's guest is a very good friend of mine, uh, somebody who I met uh, in my time with the organisation Vistage.com, a fellow Vistage chair, uh, an award-winning chair, uh, and just a genuinely lovely, lovely person. Laura Gordon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Adam. Lovely to be here. Um, so let's kick straight off. What do you believe currently is the biggest leadership challenge that leaders are going through at the moment? I think it has to be all the uncertainty that the world's facing. You know, just when we thought we were coming out of COVID, now um, we're kind of find ourselves um, embroiled in a war that nobody really expected. So, you know, just the last two years have just been absolutely plagued by uncertainty. So you're you're a coach, a facilitator, a chair. Um, how, how did you get into, into that? Uh, well, I used to be a corporate lawyer, funnily enough, and that was pretty much transactional. And I would meet fantastic people, have great chats, conversations, and then the deal would be done. And I wouldn't see them again for quite a while until they needed another deal. Also, as a lawyer, you're sometimes a bit of a distressed purchase, and I didn't really enjoy that part of it. Uh, I was very conscious that I wanted to do something that was more meaningful than just adding shareholder value and, um, you know, basically doing a job and wanted to do something that really played to my strengths, which is about listening and actually helping other people face issues and challenges. I always felt that I wanted to make a contribution in that way. So um, ultimately, with a slight digression along the way where I worked for the Scottish Government on an economic development initiative, uh, I became an executive coach and that was about 10 years ago now. And really, I've never looked back. I think it's the best job in the world. I'm incredibly privileged to work with the people that I work with. And also, the freedom of being able to choose who you work with, when you work, mm. and the type of work that you take on is really quite something that I hadn't experienced before. So, you, you use the word coaching. Uh, what, what is coaching to you, and what is your style of coaching? So coaching for me is about supporting and challenging people to be better or to push themselves further, to achieve more, to um, perhaps see the things that they're not seeing, their blind spots, um, challenging them in some of their beliefs. A lot of people, leaders even, have limiting beliefs uh, and their assumptions and, you know, really helping them. It's almost like holding a mirror up to your clients where they're seeing themselves in a slightly different light and I ask a lot of questions not as good questions as you ask Adam because you're the master of insightful questions thank you but but it is all about asking the right questions and it's interesting because many people uh, both my brother-in-laws included have been known to say to me what do you know about business how can you advise mm -hmm. these people well i have been in business and i've done a variety of different things but actually i don't need to know 
uh, about the individual's businesses to be able to ask them really good questions and the the granularity about kind of operational issues doesn't usually come into it mm. um, I often talk about kind of the the curse of knowledge and actually the aspect that sometimes people know too much about the business so that they're, they're blinded by uh, having too much information whereas I, I feel that often as a, as a as a coach is less is more and actually you're able to to listen to what people are saying what they're not saying um, what their body is showing you and not showing you and and the and the general general energy I would love for you to obviously don't mention any names but I'd love for you to kind of give a couple of examples of um, your coaching journey in how you've challenged uh, used some of those questions and supported individuals um, whether it be through the the process whether it be the specific questions um, just love for you to share a couple of examples it's hard to think of actual concrete examples but I, I do remember one time where I was with a really lovely man that I'd known for a while and who had come into one of my Vistage groups as a member and we were in quite a public place in the centre of Glasgow and he was telling me how upset he was about the way that one of his that one of the people that worked with him had had kind of left the business um, and we started digging deeper because that's what you do as a coach you've got to dig a lot deeper than necessarily what the person that you're coaching is telling you you know as you say reading between the lines just kind of hearing what's not being said and it turned out to be something really deeply personal that from his past that he'd never really dealt with Mm -hmm. which was colouring his leadership style, his reactions, his behaviours. And it was a bit of a breakthrough moment. It, it was quite, um, there were a few tears, but it was a breakthrough moment for him. And I, I'm not a counsellor, I'm not a psychotherapist. And I think as coaches, we need to be really clear about what we, what we don't do. Um, and we did unpack quite a lot of emotional stuff and I suggested that he go and get some separate treatment for that. But the transformation that that then created, and it was a business conversation. And therefore, you know, what I realised, and I think what we all realise as coaches, you cannot separate the business from the individual. Mm. And that's, ex mm. that's basically what executive coaching is. It's about the whole person. Um, recognizing that it is about their effectiveness as a leader, but also their 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 private lives as well. What's going on behind the scenes? Why do you feel that people do try and separate uh, in having this? Um, and, it, and it's interesting. My observation would be is that I've seen it very much more within professional services where the work life is very much defined and very very separate to kind of. You know, outside of you know, outside of work. Um, why do you think we we tr you know some people try to create the the boundaries and the separation between the two and not understand that actually life is all affecting and all encompassing. It's interesting. Um, you know, one of the insights I had when we did the insights um, 
kind of personality profiling, divergence between people acting consciously and not so consciously um, was the fact that some people are just not really the same person in and out of the office and in and out of work. Um, and we've had long conversations about that. I have with some of my clients and they feel that they've got to put a mask on. And I think that's quite common. It's mm. quite common mm. when people feel that they've got to perform a role or um, kind of be a particular type of person. They can't really be themselves. They can't really be natural, be honest, and just be really kind of authentic selves in their place of work. I think that's a, it's a sad situation because it takes a lot of energy and a lot of emotional energy to mm -hmm. put that mask on. But unfortunately, some cultures and some workplaces don't make it that easy for people to be honest and be open. In, in your experience, do you find the individuals and organisations where there is more, um, I'll use a slightly cheesy word here, authenticity, where people are allowed to be themselves, do you find that they're more successful or um you know just love your love your insight on that i think that if you feel that you can be yourself you're more likely to be happy and if you're happy you're more likely to be engaged and productive and therefore successful um in your in your role and if you're not and it's not working it's probably not the right organization for you i think having that um congruence between um, how you are at home and how you are at work. I think it is quite important. And I, I, I do remember kind of early days of being a lawyer and, um, you know, kind of sitting in at these meetings half the time not really knowing what I was listening to and trying to kind of act as if I did and, you know, maybe kind of putting on a bit, a bit of a, a mask. Um, it, it was definitely harder. Uh, when mm. I started kind of just like this is me you have to accept the way I am and I, I, it just felt so much easier so I think yeah I think you can be you're you're more likely to perform at a higher level ultimately when you're happy and feeling accepted and secure in the environment that you're working in so just picking up on that aspect of the of the mask can you remember when you were wearing the mask and then when you were able to kind of put it down was there a was there a particular point in your your career that that happened for you uh do you know it's interesting i think the best piece of career advice i i got was when i was just about to be 40 and i was taking on this, this scottish government role and uh, a, a very senior businessman said to me because uh, I, I was asking everybody for advice, how do I do this? I, you know, I was really completely out with my comfort zone. I didn't really know what economic development was until I um, kind of went, went for the role and really had to prepare for it. Um, so he said to me, um, be yourself. He said, treat everybody the same. Nobody is better or worse. Mm -hmm. And you mm -hmm. will, you know, that is your key to success. I think it was probably the best the best advice I ever had because after that I did just treat everybody the same you know whether it was a um, government leader a business leader you know the principal of a prestigious organization uh, university or whatever um, I, 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 I was my real authentic self 
and mm. it, it was just it was so much more enjoyable um so you mentioned earlier about um the importance of having a, an executive coach um i'd love to for, for you to share who have been the not necessarily just coaches but you, you kind of said they're uh, a great piece of advice who are, who've been the kind of mentors or coaches that you've had through your journey and the impact that they've had for you um, do you know, probably the, the best uh, influence and mentor was my grandmother, who sadly has been away for quite a long time. But I remember just from a very young age, she was always interested in other people, always read biographies, always, uh, you know, she was just re really fascinated by other people. And she always used to say to me, never judge, um, always, you know, kind of walk a mile in somebody else's shoes you know imagine what it's like being them and I think that was wonderful advice and you know uh, she was probably one of the strongest influences growing up um, I also had the the great pleasure of serving on the court of Caledonian University Glasgow Caledonian University as a governor for nine years and the principal um, professor Pamela Gillis became a, a good friend and although I was a governor on her court, I think I learned so much from her. Um, she was just a really, you know, incredible leader who was visionary and transformative for the university and, you know, for the people around her. And so I found her really, really inspiring. Uh, and the other person I've got to say, and this is going to be really cheesy, um, is actually my husband. So he is, he's probably one of the best well, he is the best person I've ever met, but one of the best person anyone would ever meet because he's just so kind, so genuine, so caring. He's a doctor. He sees the best in everybody, and um, he literally keeps me in the straight and narrow. Um, you know, he is my calming influence. He, he, mm -hmm. he really is. Uh, I, I think the day I met him was probably, I was very lucky. Tell us more. You can't just you can't you can't just stop there. Tell us more. Well, I've been married now for twenty seven years, um, and uh, yeah, he just retired. We moved we moved down to England um, because we wanted to be nearer our children and baby grandchildren. And he retired, and and he's just he's loving his retirement. So, mm -hmm. um, and we've just. We've, best friends, soulmates, and, you know, genuinely, I think, to, to meet somebody like that and be able to spend, it's, you know, it's almost half my life with him, um, I have been just really blessed and really fortunate, so. So, talk to us about the, I mean, obviously, uh, those listening, or most people listening will probably know that I made a big move uh, from the UK to, um, to New Zealand, but you also not not long after you did you made a move as well, moving from uh, um, from Sc Scotland to England. I just love the way you said you said that in the fact that um, I would say, oh, you moved to London, but no, you actually moved from Scotland to, to England. I'd love for you to share uh, how that transition's been for you and for Jonathan, your husband. Well, it's interesting because I do remember when you told me that you were moving to New Zealand and going, wow, that is just the bravest decision ever um, and I remember thinking to myself I've, I've lived in Glasgow all my life I've lived in Scotland all my life you know what must it be like to to move 
like literally across the world, the other side of the world. Um, so actually moving from Glasgow to London wasn't such a big move in that context. Uh, but it was during lockdown and, you know, we hadn't been able to see the babies. And um, we because working from home and, you know, doing a lot of work over Zoom, and phone and you know virtually had become acceptable suddenly there was an opportunity and uh, so we were very fortunate we decided to sell we sold very quickly found somewhere in the area that we wanted to live in very quickly and we moved down and we're very fortunate in that a lot of our family and friends are already down in London and North London um, and I'm <coughs> catching up with people that I haven't seen uh, for 30, 40 years, I met this girl I used to go to brownies with. She was my, our guide, she was my patrol leader at guides, and I met her at the local David Lloyd. Her son was one of the teachers. It was just, wow. you know, so funny. So rediscovering all these old friends. Plus, I was able to set up a Vistage group in London as well. Um, so yep. I've started to develop a really good business network. And I just absolutely love it. I still go back to Scotland once a month. Uh, I run my Vistage group. They are incredible. The Scottish group are incredible. The London group that is growing is, uh, you know, it's almost full now, actually. It's also incredible. And I just, ju I just feel very lucky. I'm touching wood just now, by the way. I'm a bit superstitious. So I've said how lucky I am so many times. I don't want to tempt fate. So um, do you know where touching wood comes from? Was it not something to do with the cross? It, that that's it. That's it. It's to do with Jesus Christ. It was seen to be. Um, was it luck to touch yeah. the cross? Yeah, it's quite funny because um, I I remember I remember saying something like, "Oh yeah, touch wood," and uh, I was actually with somebody uh, that was really really uh, Jew that's Jewish and really religious. And they said, "You can't say that." I'm like, "Why? Why can't I say that?" He says, "Well, you know." Um, do you believe in Jesus Christ? I'm like, actually, I'm not really sure what I believe in, but that's a whole nother episode. Um, uh, and he told me the story, and I was like, oh, that's really quite, that's really quite fascinating. It's funny where um, these things that have kind of been embedded within, you know, just our subconscious in how and what we say, and we just got no idea actually where what the meaning is, and often um, uh, where they uh, where they come from. Um, Laura, who's Who's challenging you at the moment? So you you speak about um, being, you know, uh, an executive coach. Where where do you get your challenge from? Apart from your husband. Well, um, for for my sins, I took on the best practice role, uh, best practice chair role with Vistage this year. So I have about twenty Vistage chairs challenging me on a regular basis. Um, essentially, uh, Vistage has 60 chairs in the UK and it's divided into three regions and I was asked to kind of run one of the, the, the one of the Vistage chair groups. Um, so we meet on a regular basis and these are all, my God, they're highly intelligent, really successful people and they can be very challenging. Um, and I also have another group of um, colleagues that I meet with on a regular basis who are highly challenging as well. Uh, so yeah, I, I think um, it's important though because it, it does keep you fresh, and it stops you being complacent, and um, you know it, it it just keeps it all real. I think having mm. that challenge mm. back and constantly having to 
keep improving and um, you know just striving for to be better than what you are. Okay, um, I'm going to go a little bit deeper now. Um, I'm going to talk about a subject that you and I have, have spoken about um, at, at times when there's probably been not that many people around, um, and this aspect around kind of imposter syndrome and you know not be, not being good enough. Um, and I remember <clears throat> I, I can actually almost picture where we were. And, you know, I, I shared my vulnerability and said, you know, you know, sometimes this is what happens and I don't think that I'm good enough and I'm in a group and I'm in a room of people and I ask myself why I'm here. And I remember you turning around and go, I can't believe that you think like that because, you know, uh, this is who you are and how you are. I'm like, no, no, this is how I am. And I think that that allowed you and I to then go into a, a, a deeper conversation. Um, I'd love for you to just share how that has sh- how that's affected and shown up for you during the years about, you know, um, this aspect of kind of not being good enough and imposter syndrome and how it's shown up, but then also how you've dealt with it. Uh, it's interesting because I talk about this all the time with people. I talk about this with my members um, and, you know, and, and with colleagues as well. I have definitely suffered from and still do suffer from impe- um, imposter syndrome and, um, so often I could give you a dozen examples um, and, and how, how to deal with it, how have I dealt with it. I actually think that every time you feel like that is a reason to keep pushing yourself to do what you're most afraid of. And I was mm. challenged by one of my colleagues um, when I was considering taking on this role as best practice chair with Vistage. Uh, because my first inclination was no I can't do it and he asked me why not and I said I don't have the time and he said is that the real reason and we, we he kind of drilled down um, you and I both know this person he's six foot six and he lives in Yorkshire um, and <laughs> and he kept drilling, drilling down and I said okay I'm 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 afraid to do it you know I, I think I'm I don't think I'm going to be as good uh, as I should be and and he said, that's your reason for not doing it. You, you need to do it. And he's quite right. So whenever mm-hmm. something really scares you, um, I think that's when you need to really kind of lean in and challenge yourself to, to do something. And there's been so many times over the years that, you know, things that have felt really, really scary, once you, once you get over that barrier, once you accept the challenge, um, then that then it's so worth it and it feels so rewarding at the other end so if something isn't giving you fear if something doesn't make you a little bit scared you know might not even be worth doing you're too much in your comfort zone so the imposter syndrome i see as a really good thing i see as a really powerful tool to keep um keep incentivizing me to keep going and to take on new challenges and i i think it could possibly be the same for you. Well, so I'm I'm hearing you, and it's interesting because there's a there's a change of concept that I'm hearing, knowing you like I do. Um, I I I felt that it probably constrained you for a long time, but what I'm hearing now is is that actually you're leaning into it and you're seeing it as a um my words kind of inner strength. When's that? When's that transition happened? Um, 
that that's a good question. I hadn't actually thought about it like that. I I think probably in the last kind of two to three years, I think that what that the absolute privilege of working with the people that I work with and learning from them mm. has mm. I think given me probably yeah a bit more of that inner strength to recognize that maybe you know I, I can just take on these challenges that seem really really scary now that doesn't stop I mean I sat um, in, a, in a conversation today with three of my members who are all incredibly intelligent successful uh, powerful people in their own industries and I sat there and I still thought to myself probably the stupidest person in this room um, and I keep you know so I'll keep telling myself things like that and it probably mm -hmm. is the, mm -hmm. it probably is the case in terms of IQ um, but actually you, you know it's not all about uh, intelligence IQ you know there's a an element of emotional intelligence of social intelligence political intelligence that I think as you kind of get older and mm -hmm. um, I hate to say wiser because I don't feel I'm very wise, but you know may maybe just kind of get a bit more experience, then you know your intuition is honed, and you can start to ask. Sometimes you know you'll ask a question that you don't know where it came from, but it turned out to be a really good question. Um, so, you know it's not always something you think about, uh, but you know it's because you've been listening, and you know as a result of your experience and knowledge, you're able to. Um, ask a question that really, you know, can just hit the right chord. Do you, do you think that um, what we're taught with regards to the definition of success, actually, as we as we grow and we age and we become more w wise, is that actually the 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 rigidity of what we're told or taught, actually, we realise, or a lot of us realise, that actually success is is from a multitude of factors. A hundred percent. It's not just about the wealth that you accumulate and the status that you acquire in in life. Um, some of the wealthiest people are the people who just, you know, are surrounded by love and they're happy and they're at peace with themselves. And actually, I would probably count my husband Jonathan in that. Sorry to get back to him. And I know this sounds really, really cheesy, but. Um, he is somebody with a lot of kind of like he's just so content um, mm -hmm. he you know he is very happy with his lot in life um, he's got me of course but also you know it, it's just is it, that happiness comes from inside so mm -hmm. you know it's not about material possessions it's not about what car you drive the house you've got the holidays that you take it's actually comes from inside which is why so many people who are kind of searching for happiness are possibly looking in the wrong place so that's so for me success is about having the people around you that you love and that you want to be around you know it's it's, it's a moment by moment thing um, mm -hmm. you know not a goal or something to achieve it's not about the Bentley in the driveway um, or the or the private plane so if somebody if somebody's listening to this or you were coaching somebody and said, I'm just not happy, what, what would you, what's the questions that you'd be asking them or, or the or the advice that you would be giving? 
I'd, I'd be asking them what happiness means to them and really kind of digging quite deep in that. Um, and I'd try not to give advice. It's quite mm -hmm. hard mm -hmm. being an ex-lawyer because that's what you were paid in billable hours for. But um, yeah, I, I think just, you know, what is happiness to you? What does that mean? And, you know, how do you know when you're happy? And when do you, you know, can you think of a time where you've ever felt really happy? Mm -hmm. And, you know, so ha happiness is not a destination, is it? It's sometimes just a transient, fleeting moment. Um, and I'm actually reading Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart just now. I don't know if you've read it, but I'm a massive fan of Brene Brown. And she actually goes into, you know, great, she's examining emotions in far greater, greater detail than anybody's examined them before and the mm -hmm. meaning behind mm -hmm. them. And, you know, so people tend to use just a handful of words to describe how they feel. But actually, there's so much, so many more words. Um, you know, there's so many different nuances to each word. And what she's talking about is if we can communicate better about how we truly feel, then we will have people understand us a lot better and, you know, that, that will enable stronger relationships. So really trying to delve deep into what somebody really means if they say that. Uh, moving on, let's... Um, so I introduce you to one of my... a couple of my teachers... Uh, Professor Shri Kumar Rao and Davide and Elizabeth um, from Wise Humanity. Um, so if anybody's listening that hasn't heard me talk about Wise Humanity, just go and have a look at their website. Um, just, I'd love for you to just share your your insights and your learnings uh, from that intervention um, and how it's impacted you as you move forward in your life. That was probably one of the best gifts you ever gave me, Adam, telling me about the uh, the, the course. Um, it was, does it, I think it was November um, 2018 or 2019, I can't remember, starting to get confused with the years. But I remember being on the phone to Davide and saying, I, I can't come to, I think it was September, actually, I can't come because... I, I'm on holiday, I don't get back to the day after. He said, change your holiday, change your dates. And I did. And actually, uh, it was uh, one of the last face-to-face -face courses that they did, and Professor Rao uh, came on. It was pretty transformational, and possibly part of my own transformation did occur around about that time. So, that, again, you've called that out. I sometimes think you're a bit psychic, Adam. Um, <laughs> but... Um, that there were so many aspects to that. It's about self-awareness and it's about really going deep into yourself. The course is, um, it's about personal mastery. Uh, so really being able to understand why we do what we do, what our motivations are, what drives us, um, how we can um, react uh, and see things in a different way. And I'll give you a great example. My husband actually was astonished. Um, I ripped my car apart yesterday. There's this ridiculous traffic calming scheme near us that I didn't know about, but apparently everybody down here knows about. It's been uh, widely criticised and been seen on video so many times for cars that get ripped apart. So ripping my 
beautiful white Tesla, which I, was my pride and joy. I know I've said I'm not into material possessions and they don't mean success, but I do. It's an electric car and I'm trying to do the right thing. And and there was a really good um, kind of tax tax reason for doing it as well. But essentially, this gorgeous car just got ripped apart in these bollards. And my husband, I think, was kind of like waiting for my reaction. And, and I was like, okay, okay. Uh, in the scheme of things, with what's going on in Ukraine right now, if this is the worst thing that happens to me today, I'll take it. And he was shocked. And I actually think that that is a result of that course and how I now manage um, my, my, my emotions in a far mm -hmm. more, in a far healthier and far more productive way. I mean, I still get upset irrationally and, you know... Um, but I think that was a really good example and quite timely. And he said to me in the evening as well, I still couldn't believe how well, you know, you kind of dealt with that because the whole wing of the car was ripped off. It's horrible. Yeah, I, th I think for me, uh, having been through the course as well, um, my highs and lows are not, the extremities are not so big. So, yes, things do still affect me but not in the same degree that they did did before. How, how have you taken the learnings from that um, and utilised and leveraged with the people that you work with? Um, I think my coaching has probably uh, really kind of been a little bit super, I wouldn't say supercharged, that sounds uh, quite boastful. I don't, I don't mean that. I think it's helped with a lot of the questions. Um, I've also talked through quite a few of the concepts with some of my members and um, in particular, you know, the, the good thing, bad thing, who knows? None of us really know if something's good or bad until much later on, you know, and, and in retrospect. Um, so Sorry, Laura, can you give us, could you give us uh, the listeners a bit of an example as how that works? So essentially, this is an old Sufi tale about a farmer who has a stallion, who the stallion, the, the neighbours are all really jealous and say, lucky you. And he said, good thing, bad thing, who knows? The stallion then runs away and the neighbours are all like, good thing, bad thing, who knows? And then the stallion comes back and brings a whole load of other stallions with him and the neighbours are all jealous again. And the farmer says, good thing, bad thing, who knows? Um, the sons of the, the the son of the farmer then goes riding the stallion and falls and breaks his leg and the neighbors all say that's terrible and the farmer says good thing bad thing who knows um, and then the next thing war is declared and all the sons are called up to the army and a lot of the the villagers sons are killed in the war and again good thing bad thing who knows um, the, the point of the story, and this is where my members, we've done exercises around this, what in your life have you thought was terrible at the time, but now looking back, it actually worked out for the best. And um, a great example uh, is when people lose their jobs. And obviously there's been mm -hmm. a lot of that happening, um, you know, certainly early in the pandemic. And people have been, you know, distraught. And then something better has come along. And so, and very often it does, and, and very often, you know, losing something that you've held very dear and very close to you, like a job or a position or a status or whatever, um, you know, 
having it taken away uh, because you wouldn't necessarily have given it away enables you to do something very different and will give you the opportunity for something new. And so, so that I think was a, a really great tale to be able to talk to people. But there's also that there's the um, element about building your cathedral and um, you know living a life of purpose that I think has become more and more important in people's lives since the pandemic. And that was a concept that, you know, we talked a lot about in that. And um, so many organisations now are, you know, they're kind of trying to change so that they can be more purposeful, more, you know, have more of a um, environmental and social mission and, you know, really trying to improve the way that they do business and the values that they bring into their businesses. Have you come across B Corporations? Yeah, that was. I was just trying to remember. <laughs> the yeah. Corp, absolutely, it's the buzzword just now. Um, so many of the organisations I'm talking, uh, uh, you know, that that I talk with, um, are fascinated and interested in finding out more about it, and you know, looking at and certainly what one of um my Vistage colleagues is also a speaker. Um, her company is just being B Corp accredited. I think it's fantastic because then what that does, that whole process, um, creates a value system and behaviours within an organisation in line with what they say that they'll do. Um, so a, a really good friend of mine, um, here in New Zealand, but um, uh, from Wales, a guy called Tim Jones, former guest here on the podcast. Uh, he's known as the Grow Good Guy. Um, and he specialises in helping uh, organisations uh, transition to becoming B Corp. Uh, so uh, if you are listening, definitely worthwhile having a look. Um, Laura, just before we, we finish, I'd love for you to... Uh, so uh, Vistage has been uh, mentioned a n- number of times. Vistage is the global organisation for uh, peer mastermind groups for chief execs and senior leaders. Um, I'd just love for you to share your thoughts on um, being in a mastermind, what a mastermind, uh, the value that it brings to the individual, but also the value it brings to the organisation. More than happy to. I I think that the one thing that attracted me to Vistage um, as a a coach was the fact that as a coach, I could only do so much, but having a group of peers for a business leader to be part of meant that they were getting, I call it coaching on steroids. It, it really is. It's the board you cannot afford, as one of my members co- constantly calls it. Essentially, they will come once a month. Um, they will meet with between 12 and 16 fellow business leaders, the gen- generally the same people until you know one leaves, somebody else comes in. They will hear a world-class speaker on a range of different topics they will share issues and challenges and they're very honest and open with each other because it's a a safe and secure environment confidentiality is one of the foundations and therefore they can talk about anything that they feel they need to talk about there are also no competitors in the room because there's only one business per sector and what that then creates is um a, a a a dynamic whereby once a month they know that they can have a day where they're working on the business, not in the business, where they can really be themselves and just take a deep breath and, um, you know, to, to learn, but also to offload um, because it's a lonely place being a business leader. Who can you talk mm. to? Are you going to talk to your direct report? Are you going to talk to your board? 
um, about some of the things that are bothering you? Possibly not. Um, your spouse might not want to hear about it and your pals most certainly over a beer aren't really going to want to know all the details. So it, it just offers that safe place for business leaders to be able to talk about anything they want. Thank you, Laura. Uh, final question. Uh, what does Frank and Phyllis mean to you? We talked about honesty and being yourself. And I think that that, that you know, just being able to be honest and upfront with people, I think they deserve it. Um, the people that I work with would want me to be frank. Um, the fearless part of it, you know yourself, part of my, it's always held me back because I don't want to upset people. That, so that can be a bit of a challenge, telling somebody something that they might not want to hear. But I think, I think once I hit 50, I think I got better at that as well. Uh, it definitely comes something, there's more confidence with age. Um, and I think I'm getting better at that as well. And there's, there's a nice way to tell people things that they maybe don't want to hear. Um, I think the fearless thing, uh, you know, to say that somebody's absolutely fearless, um, you know, that they're not going to be absolutely fearless. We're always going to have reservations about doing things, but it's having the confidence and the courage to do something that, um, that scares you. Hmm. And, and I think um, you kind of mentioned it earlier on about this aspect of leaning into the fear or the uncomfortableness is that actually that's where that's where the change and the challenge and the growth comes for an individual is if, you know, I don't know, if you want to be a better version of yourself, you're going to have to do the things that at the time seem nervy, fearful, different. But like you said, is that actually once you've done them, then never it never is as bad as you think it's going to going to be you know um the self-preservation protection piece makes us uh um create a mental model in our minds that actually is worse than it is actually going to be and actually when we've done it it's like oh that wasn't as bad as i thought it was going to be um laura um this has been an absolute um pleasure um thank you for being my friend thank you for being a mentor thank you for being somebody who um i've learned so much from um, and uh, I massively value uh, our relationship. And um, despite the fact that we're on the other side of the world, I still hold you very, very dear to my heart. So thank you. Been a pleasure having you on as a guest. I, it's, it's a pleasure to be invited. I did say, what do you want to speak to me for? But um, <laughs> uh, Adam, well, you, bit... you're, you're like my little brother. Remember, we've talked about that. You did try and call me your mother, but I'm not old enough to be your mother. <laughs> I wasn't going to bring that up, but you did. Okay. <laughs> um, <clears throat> this has been the Frank and Fearless Leadership Podcast. Uh, as I request every single week, if you've enjoyed this, please just recommend it and forward it on to one person. Um, the impact that that may well have uh, from the conversations that we have uh, just helps shift somebody's mindset, helps them think in a different way, and allows them to uh, just question and challenge maybe some of the decisions that they're making. Uh, so uh, who's the one person that listening to this you feel you should be forwarding on to? Um, till the next time, uh, I'm Adam Harris. This is the Frank and Fearless Leadership Podcast. Bye for now.